we are. Well, thank you, ladies. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. I was admiring all of your tables as I walked around. Y'all are way more creative than I am. Um, (laughs) I'm the scientist, so I got the left brain side um, of things going on here. But um, I appreciate um, that other people are very um, creative. And uh, so it is a pleasure to be here. I live in Rising Sun, Indiana, which is just uh, about an hour and a half north of here, just over the river. Uh, So it wasn't too far of a drive for us this morning. And um, so we're going to be talking about Hope Amid Despair, The Legacy of Eve. Um, First of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, where I come from, Answers in Genesis. Um, We are an apologetics ministry, which means we want to really enable um, Christians to defend their faith. Um, That's what apologetics means, defending the faith. And to, in order to, to do that, in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively, and we are committed to defending God's truth from the very first verse. And we have a lot of different ways in which we do that. Um, how many of y'all have been to the Creation Museum? Okay, so quite a few of you. Um, so we have, um, we have a lot of, we do conferences like this one today. This is my second one this week. Um, we have a radio program. We have lots of resources, some of which you'll find out there. We have a website that has tons of information on it. And we also have the Creation Museum. So for those of you that haven't visited, visited the Creation Museum, you have no excuse because you're only like an hour and a half away. Okay, so just saying, um, it's not very far from here. Uh, sometimes if I go out to other states, you know, it would be a multi-day trip, but um, it's, it's very close here. So I'm going to show you this a short little one-minute video um, to hopefully entice you um, to come this summer. special year uh, for the Creation Museum because we have been open for 10 years, and we will celebrate our 10-year anniversary this week, in fact. Um, We have a new exhibit opening, and um, it's really been amazing. We've welcomed over 3 million people um, to the Creation Museum in 10 years, and so um, we hope that you'll be able to um, come out and join us sometime soon. Uh, So I want to talk about Eve, because I think that's a very appropriate talk um, for women, and I must admit, um, I had some preconceived notions, so to speak, about Eve when I started researching um, for this presentation and what to talk about. Um, She's the original bad girl of the Bible, okay? And um, the legacy that we often think about um, with Eve was one of sin and despair uh, for all mankind. And I thought, okay, so how is this going to relate um, to me? I mean, how is this something that I can learn from? But what I really began to see was that Eve really had two legacies. Um, Yes, she left a legacy of sin and despair because her actions condemned the world. But as we'll see, she also had a legacy of salvation and hope because it was her seed, Jesus Christ, 
that would save the world, right? Would come in to save sinners. And so there really is two aspects to this. So we're going to look in detail at these two legacies and see how they apply um, to our lives today and really help us determine the legacy that we want to leave as women. So to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to turn to what are called the seven C's of history. And in my second presentation today, I'll be talking more um, about each of these um, in, in more detail. Uh, but we're going to talk about creation, obviously the creation of the world, everything in it, corruption, when sin entered the world, and um, we'll especially be talking about those first two C's in this presentation because they really relate to Eve. Um, we'll talk about catastrophe and the flood and what happened there is judge, God judged sinful mankind. Confusion, the Tower of Babel, um, when the languages were confused and people spread out over the world. And those are really the first four major events and the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And what we'll see um, is that they are foundational um, to these last three seas of Christ's cross uh, and consummation. Um, the birth of Christ, his death and resurrection, and obviously the fact that we get to spend eternity with him um, if we know him as our Savior. And so um, we're going to talk about Eve, like I say, mostly in these first two seeds. Um, but we're also going to talk about the remaining five because they're very important part um, of Eve's legacy, especially her legacy of salvation and hope through Jesus Christ. It doesn't end in Genesis, um, and so we want to we want to address that. So first, we're going to we're going to talk about creation, the first sea. And on day six, we know that God created the land animals, and then he created Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve were unique, okay? They were not, human beings are not animals, because God said, let us make man in our image, right? So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So both man and woman are created in God's image. So we have equal value, and we have equal standing um, before God, okay? And then God commanded them to um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, to take care of it, to be stewards of it. So chapter 1 kind of gives us a summary of creation, what was created on each day, what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And then chapter 2 kind of takes us back in, in time a little bit to the creation of Adam and Eve. God's going to kind of expand, so to speak, on that part and give us some more details. And that's really important from a human perspective because it's important to understand where we come from, um, but also from God's perspective because we are the crowning glory um, of creation. We were created in God's image. We were unique. We were created to have a relationship with him. So it's important, important that God address those things in more detail. So the first part of chapter two really focuses on Adam um, and his creation. But then in mid-chapter, um, we learn about the creation of Eve. And the Lord God said, it is not good that a man, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, what's interesting is this is the first time in all of creation that God says something is not good. Okay. Not in the sense of being imperfect or bad, but in the sense of incomplete. Okay. Don't think of it as bad. It's just not complete yet. So he's going to make Adam a helper comparable to him. So she is the same kind of being. She bears the image of God, just like he does. Um, so again, men and women are equal before God, but we complement one another, right? We're different um, physically, emotionally, mentally. That doesn't make us inferior, okay? No, one is not inferior to the other. We're just different. Um, we bear the image of God uniquely. Um, females bear it differently than males, and that's good, right? God saw that the male alone was incomplete, and so to bear his image fully, he needed both male and female. But before God creates this helper, um, he brought the animals to Adam to name. 
And there was not a helper, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, it's not like God was saying, well, let's see if one of these animals will work. (laughs) Um, God knows, God's already decided he's going to make a helper, right? He knows there's not one comparable, but Adam needed to see that. Adam needed to know that there wasn't anything like him in the world. He was unique, and so um, he needed something else. And so in um, Genesis 2, uh, God takes, puts Adam to sleep and takes one of his ribs and makes the woman. And I think it's really interesting that Eve was made from Adam's side, okay? Um, and uh, Matthew Henry, who's a 17th and 18th century theologian, I think said this really well. He said, Eve was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And I just love that description, you know, equal. Because so much, even in our society today, um, women many times are treated as inferior or not equal to men. But that's not scriptural. That's not biblical at all. We have different roles. Um, We bear the image of God uniquely, but we are equal in value and equal in bearing God's image. Um, This is another quote um, on the creation of Eve from uh, John MacArthur, if you're familiar with him. He's a a well-known pastor out in California. And I love this quote. He said, Adam was refined dirt. Eve was a glorious refinement of humanity itself. Okay, so guys are dirt and we're not. Um, don't say. But, um, and, you know, it's easy to laugh about that. But what he's saying is biblical, okay, right? In First Corinthians, it says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Okay, and so, and I think a lot of people have this idea, and I hear this all the time, well, the Bible oppresses women, and I'm like, you are not reading the Bible then. You do not know what the Bible says. It liberates women. It makes women on equal standing with men before God. Um, We both bear God's image. And um, MacArthur said um, women are kind of, in some ways, okay, and let me explain this, exalted above men, he said, because they are the living and breathing manifestation of the glory of a race made in God's image. And so scripture clearly exalts women, um, popular to contrary belief. We're not that we're above men because we are, we're we're equal, okay, and different. And I'm going to say that a lot, okay, because I think it's important. I think within the church, I think within our world at large, that's still very much an issue, and we need to understand that. We have different roles. We have different things we do. We bear the image of God uniquely, but we are equal before God and have equal standing. And it was really interesting when I was preparing this presentation, because a lot of um, authors uh, tend to talk about uh, Eve as being very beautiful, okay? And um, they, they talk about her unsurpassing beauty, which is interesting because there's nothing in the Bible, right, about what Eve looked like. Um, it doesn't say that she was necessarily beautiful. And um, it's really interesting, too, when you look at art and you see how Eve is commonly portrayed. Now, I don't know about you, um, but this is not how I really think about Eve. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting. Like, on in some of these, she's having a really bad hair day. Um, in some of these, she doesn't appear to have a neck. Uh, she's not looking too good, okay? This, is, this doesn't, and here's some other ones. Um, she's got some big muscles, right, in the one picture. She's having, needs some coffee. I don't know. It's early morning. Uh, she just doesn't look very nice, right? I mean, these are pretty 
some pretty interesting pictures. I don't really think it's a proper artistic portrayal of what she may have looked like. And so this is how we portray her at the Creation Museum, um, which I think is, is, I hope, a much more accurate representation of her. Notice in all the other pictures I showed, she's Caucasian. Okay, and this is a very common thing. I see this in children's books all the time. Eve, mm -mm, she's not Caucasian. And um, because look at all the skin, all the different skin shades we have today, okay? And I'll talk about this a little bit in my second presentation, but if she was really white and her husband was really white, everybody would be really white, okay? Genetically speaking, trust me on this one, it's not gonna work any other way. So um, that's not accurate. She needed to be more of a, what we call middle brown um, shade of skin. And um, MacArthur, one of the things that he stated about her was that maybe God didn't describe her beauty because that wasn't really what was important to God, right? That wasn't what he wanted to focus on, not what's on the, in, not what's on the outside, but he wanted to focus what's on the inside, that her relationship with God, the fact that she was an image bearer. So what was Adam's response when he saw Eve for the first time? He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he realized this is the same kind of being as I am. She is made in God's image. She's a similar kind of being. I mean, physically. Remember, he had named all the animals, so he already knew what they looked like. They knew, he knew that this, this person was different um, from all of those beings. And, um, but different. So that's why she has a different name, right? She's not man, she's woman. And one of my Bible professors used to say, um, she was called woman because when Adam saw her, he said, whoa, man, <laughs> not in the Bible. Okay. But, um, I have no doubt that he was very impressed, um, with what he saw, um, to make this statement. I mean, he realizes she is of me. She is um, part of me. And, um, and what happens next? God marries Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is the institution of marriage by God. And this is why marriage can only be defined as between one man and one woman, because God created it and he defined it. Um, and he's the only one that has the right to define it. If the U.S. wants to define it differently, that's fine. But then it's, <laughs> but that's not really the right, okay? Because God is the one that created it. Therefore, he defines it. Um, and, and think about it, too. We have Adam, right? And then God took a rib and made Eve. So what was one became two. And when they come together in marriage, they become one again. That's only possible for a man and a woman, right? Because the woman was taken out of man. And so that's only possibility. So he created it. Therefore, he defines it. Now, imagine what their marriage um, was like, <laughs> okay? They're perfect, remember. No sin has entered the world at this point. They're absolutely perfect. So complete and total perfection, joy, and happiness. But it didn't last, right? Sadly, we know that. Um, we see that today in our world. Today, marriage is not perfect. If you have a perfect marriage, please let me know. Um, <laughs> because I certainly don't have a perfect one. And, um, and it's all because of what happened next. And so some people will say, well, how long do you think it took Adam and Eve to sin? And I say, knowing mankind, not long, okay? Um, probably not long. Satan had to strike before Adam and Eve fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and multiply because he wanted to sabotage all humanity, right? And in order to do that, he had to do that before she conceived, before she became pregnant. 
And so the very first things that happens in Genesis chapter 3 as we move into corruption, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this is what Satan does, has done throughout time. Questions God's word. Did God really say this? Um, and, and he misquotes God right? Because clearly God did not say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. It's going to be kind of hard to survive if they can't eat anything. Um, So he didn't say that. What did God say to Adam? In chapter 2, he said, if every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so that's very different, obviously, from what the serpent is saying to eat. And like I say, Satan hasn't changed. This is his tactic today. Um, He twists and distorts scripture so that we stop believing it and we stop trusting in it. And he turns it into really um, a negative statement, right? God says, you can freely eat of every tree of the garden, right? But what does he say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. That's what Satan says, God said. So he turns a negative statement Um, or he turns it into a a negative statement, even though God made a positive statement. So he's kind of implying to Eve, hey, God is making some limitations on you, some severe limitations. And so what does Eve say in response? We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Um, And now we don't know, people say, well, how did Eve know this? Because in Genesis chapter 2, Eve hasn't been made when God gives the command to Adam. And there's two possibilities. Obviously, Adam could have given her that information, or God could have given her that information directly. The scripture doesn't say. I think it's probably more likely that Adam told her, because he is the leader um, of the family, and so I think that was probably his responsibility um, to do that. But she does change things slightly, because God says you may freely eat of every tree of the fruit, uh, every tree of the garden. She's like, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. It kind of like takes some of the adverbs away. She kind of makes it just a very simplistic um, statement. She's diminishing. She seems to be diminishing some of the positive aspects of it. And then she exaggerates the negative aspects of it. She says, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. God didn't say they couldn't touch it, right? And so she seems to be adding to God's word here. She actually, the way, now this is, you only know this if you know the Hebrew, and I only know this from talking to Hebrew scholars. When she says, lest you die, she's actually saying, we'll die immediately if we take it and eat it. Scripture, when God had given that command to Adam, surely die means you will die eventually, not die right away. So she's really making, she's taking away some of the positive things, and she's adding to the negative things. For whatever reason, she's exaggerating both of those. And, you know, it's a dangerous thing to alter God's word, right? In Proverbs, we're, we're learning uh, 30, verse 6, we're not to do that. Um, God instructs us not to alter um, what he has written and what he has given. And so, in some ways, this may have made it easier for Satan to deceive her because she now seemed open to adding to and taking from God's word. Satan, like I say, does this today. He gets us to question God's word. Well, what did he really say? Um, and so, and, and it's interesting when we come to Second Corinthians, and it's interesting too, we get a lot of information actually from the New Testament on this particular event. Um, Paul said, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so Paul warns us that Satan works like this today. How did he deceive Eve? 
He made her question God's word. Don't trust it. Don't believe it. He was very subtle. It's very simplistic, right? I mean, and he and so that's how he works. Um, it's a lot of times not bold. Um, it's subtle. He came in disguised. He turned something that was good, the desire to be wise, into something bad. I mean, the desire to be wise is not a bad thing, right? It's the one thing that Solomon asked for. It's what he prayed for. But when that desire is placed in direct opposition to God's word, because they were told not to eat from the tree, then it's of the world. It's of Satan. It's not of Christ. Okay, so even though it might not be a bad thing to be wise, that wasn't what God wanted for them, right? He didn't want that because this was wise and not a good way. So what happens next? And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan lies because he's the father of lies. That's what he does. Uh, but he does, in some ways, correct God more um, correctly than, quote God more correctly than she did. Um, he says you will not surely die. You will not die immediately. That's correct um, in the sense of, um, dying immediately, but he wants her to doubt God's word. You know, he wants her to doubt his love. You can be like God. You don't need God. You can be like him. You can be just like him. You don't need his leadership. You don't need his love. You can do it all yourself if you just eat this fruit. And so he's kind of tempting her and saying, look, you're going to be perfect. You're going to be happy. Everything's going to be great. But I'm like, whose idea of happiness and perfection, right? Um, happiness and perfection in maybe her eyes and the world's eyes, but certainly not in God's eyes. He knew this wasn't a good thing for them. Um, and he's telling her God's words are lies. So why would you want to seek perfection in God's eyes? Come on, seek perfection in your own eyes, in my eyes, in Satan's eyes. And that's Satan's mantra to women throughout time um, in ways that we want to seek to be for perfect. Um, so what's the forbidden fruit, right, that promises perfection today? Um, well, this is a big one. Uh, if you can just lose enough weight, right, you can just be the perfect size. And what I love about that particular ad up there at the bottom, it says results not typical. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work, right, the way they say. Uh, if you can just have the right makeup or the right hairstyle or the right fashions, um, or you can have both an education and a career. You can be the perfect wife. You can be the perfect mom. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure put on women to do it all, right, to be everything. And I even think about the influence of things like Facebook, Pinterest, and blogs. Oh, my word. <laughs> um, I did not have these things when I was a teen or even in college. These things did not exist. Um, the internet was brand new. Um, so we didn't, I didn't, wasn't influenced by those things. But when I think about that today, what our young people are influenced by, um, I don't even like go to Pinterest except around VBS time. Okay. Because I can't take it. Like it overwhelms me. I'm like, Oh, I should be doing well, all these people are doing these cool crafts and cool recipes. And, you know, and it's easy to get caught up in all of that. Or you've got a lot of the mommy bloggers out there, you know, well, they seem to do it all and they have time to write about it on their computer. You know, why can't I do that? And so you start comparing, right? It's this game of, can I be as good as this person that I see on the internet? And remember you're seeing like this much of their life, right? Okay. And you're seeing only the parts they want everyone to know about, um, not everything else. Um, that's just the truth of it. And so it's hard. It leads us with a lot of guilt. 
and shame that we're not um, doing these things, right, that the world thinks um, we need to be doing. And, um, and that's Satan's lies to us today. Um, Christian author and speaker Nancy Lee DeMoss says this, Listening to things that are not true is the first step towards ultimate bondage and death. There are no harmless lies. We cannot expose ourselves to the world's false, deceptive way of thinking and come out unscathed. Eve's first mistake was not eating the fruit. Her first mistake was listening to the serpent. Now, not that she committed sin by listening to the serpent, but it was the first step toward sin. Um, and we need to think about that and what we read and what we watch and what we listen to. Um, how much are we exposing ourselves to the lies of the world? Um, because, you know, I think sometimes, especially as adults, we think, oh, we're adults, we're mature in our faith, we can handle it. <laughs> Philippians 4.8 was written for everyone, right? Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, think on these things because you will not come out unscathed. It will affect you. It will affect your thinking. It will um, harm you. It will hurt you. And um, how, how does it have an impact on us and how can it lead us to sin and even in leading others to sin? And, and that's the problem. So the forbidden fruit um, disappoints um, us today just like a disappointed Eve. Because no matter what you do, it's never enough in the world's eyes. It will never stop. Um, and it doesn't lead us to the true happiness and perfection that we, find, we can find only in God. So what did Eve choose? Right? Did she choose perfection in God's eyes? What God said was good, what God said was perfect or her own. And we know what she did, right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So she decided, I know better than God. I'm going to use my own mind, my own senses, my standard. I'm going to stand in judgment of God. And I'm going to say, I don't trust your word. I trust mine. I'm the ultimate standard. It's all about me and what I think and what I want. And the thing is, eating good things, looking at good things, and becoming wise aren't necessarily bad. But they were here um, because she gave those things priority and authority over God's words. By eating the fruit, she, she was saying to God, no, you know, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I want to obtain what I think is best. I want to do what I think is best, the perfection in my eyes or Satan's eyes or what Satan said, not what you say, God. And so she just became autonomous, you know, free from God. She said, nope, I'm going to make these decisions. I know what's best. So she ate from the tree, and then what happened? Not only did she sin, but she led her husband to sin as well, right? He was with her. There was a translation, was it the ESV? It was... I, actually, my devotions this morning was Genesis chapter 3. No joke. I didn't plan it that way. It was just what was in my devotional for the day. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of ironic. And, um, and I think it was the ESV said that it said, some translations don't say this, but it said that he was with her, right? And, he, and then she gave it to him to eat. It doesn't appear he was very far away either way, okay? She just gave it to him. It's not like it says she went out and looked for him and said, here, you should eat this. He seems to have been pretty close by. So not only did she sin, but she participated um, in helping, like I say, her husband sin. Now, that's not to exclude him. He is just as guilty, right? He had a choice to make, um, and he made the wrong one. Um, but she started, at that point, a legacy of sin and despair. But unlike Eve, um, Eve was truly deceived, but Adam was not. And we know that from 1 Timothy, because it says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So 
When he says Adam was not deceived, he knew full well what he was doing when he ate that fruit. He knew he was disobeying God and that he would be punished. He knew that full well. He was not deceived. Eve believed Satan's lies, but Adam did not. Now, why did he do it then? And that's a really good question. You know, did he do it because, well, I love my wife and I don't want her to die alone. And that sounds like a very noble and good thing, but... Um, it was what God had commanded against. And he should have put God, right, as the number one priority and his love for him over his love um, for his wife. And so what was the result of their sin? The world changed, right? Everything changed. Instead of happiness and perfection, it was shame. It was disgust. It was distress, right? Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. What are they trying to do? trying to cover their sin, right? They know they've done something wrong. But the thing is, is that no human action can save us from sin. Um, we're all sinners, right? We need something sinless to save us. And so what does God do next? Now, God knows exactly what happened, right? I mean, he knows everything. But yet, he's going he's gonna to have a conversation with them, right? They need to come to a better understanding of this. So God is there talking to them, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Because they, you know, Adam says this, that they were hiding because they were naked. He says, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, here's, here's where the game past the buck starts, right? Then the, then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. All right, here we go. So now think about what he does in this statement. Not only does he blame Eve, but who else does he blame? God. He says, you gave her to me, and look what happened. That's kind of what he's saying here. Um, And so then what does she do? She passes the buck, right? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So she blames the serpent. So either way, though, regardless of all that, even though they're blaming other things, they know the reality of it. They know what they've done. They've been confronted by God for their sin, They know there's going to be punishment for their disobedience. But, and this is what amazes me about this passage, before God curses them and tells them what's going to happen as a result, he says, you know what? I've got a plan. I've got a plan to redeem this. I've got a plan to fix this. I've got a solution to the problem of sin. I mean, they deserve death. They deserve immediate death because they had to sin in the face of a holy God, right? I mean, they just essentially slapped God in the face and said, nope, I'm going to do it my way. And even amidst all of that, God says, no, I've got a plan. Because he's a gracious, loving, compassionate, merciful God. And he tells this plan when he's cursing the serpent. And he says, I'll put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God presents the solution to sin. And that's why that history in Genesis is so important because we have the bad news in Genesis. Um, We have the problem of sin because of what Adam and Eve did and because they are representatives, because Adam is a representative of the entire human race. When he made that decision, it's like we all made that decision, right? We all have that sin nature inherited from him. And that is why we need the good news of Jesus Christ, right? He is the solution to sin. Christ is meaningless in what he did if Genesis isn't true, right? If the history there isn't true. Um, we need the, if it's going to be truly good news, there's got to be bad news, right? If it's truly going to be a solution, there's got to be a problem. And that only comes from, 
being real, Adam and Eve being real historical people who sinned um, and did what the Bible said they did. So we know that Jesus Christ needed to be a real historical person who died on the cross for our sins and resurrected to save us from sin. And that's what the rest of the Bible is going to be about, right? Think about it. If Genesis chapter 3, if that event had not really occurred, what would be the point of the rest of the Bible, right? We'd be perfect, we don't need Christ. <laughs> um, there'd be no point. We'd be living in utter perfection. And so it really is important. And, and that's why, you know, so many people, even within the church today, doubt the truthfulness of Genesis as history. But it's important. It really does matter because it's, it's the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible was built. The Old Testament is about Jesus Christ's coming, the prophecies of his coming. And in the New Testament, his life and his coming again which you don't need any of, um, if Genesis chapter 3 isn't true, right? It's really, really important to that. So the Redeemer will pay the price for sin. He will take sins away, not just cover them up. That's all the animal sacrifices could do in the, in the Old Testament. They could cover it, but they couldn't take it away because we're not related to the animals, right? And so we needed a perfect man who could only come in the form of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate um, sacrifice. So there's there's love, there's hope, there's mercy, there's compassion, there's grace in the midst of the worst thing that could have ever happened, right? Uh, amidst misery and cursing and wrath. Um, like I say, the most horrible thing ever had just happened, and God tells of the most wonderful thing ever that's going to happen as a result of that. So Eve was given hope, right? She wasn't left without hope, and thus two legacies, one of sin and death, um, which is what most people focus on, but one of salvation and life. There will be, and there still is, perpetual enmity or hatred between Eve's descendants, the human race, and, uh, and Satan. But eventually her seed would crush Satan's head. And that's the good news, right? That's why we see the footprints with the nail prints in them. Because Jesus crushed Satan's head. He resurrected from the dead. Death could not hold him. So Satan's reign uh, is not going to be forever. The curse is not going to be forever. I mean, that's a good thing, right? Because they had just sinned, they, and they're going to see the results of that, and they're going to be glad that this is not going to be a forever thing. And what's really interesting about this passage, too, is notice how God, in Genesis 3.15, he focuses on her seed when referring to the solution of, to the problem of sin. And we see that throughout Scripture. But when it comes to why there's sin, it always refers to Adam. Okay? Um, and... Sin and death and suffering are attributed to Adam. They're actually not attributed to Eve. Um, that scripture makes that very clear. Now, how many times, though, have you probably heard, well, we wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for the woman, right? And we get a bad rap, um, and it's all the woman's fault that we're, the world is the way it is today. And I'm thinking, have you read what scripture says, right? What does it say? It says, for by the one man's offense many died. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Remember earlier how I talked about Adam was not deceived. He willfully sinned. He knew exactly what he was doing, and that is why he is held accountable. He was the leader of the family. He should have been watching out for her. He should not have let this happen, okay? And so, therefore, he is the one that is held accountable for that. Now, not to say that Eve wasn't guilty or 
guilty, sorry, uh, guilty or culpable, um, but Adam knew full well what he was doing, and therefore he is the one that is held responsible. So next time someone says that, have you read your Bible lately, okay? Um, because <laughs> let's go to 1 Corinthians and Romans and see what it really says there. So after the promise to redeem all mankind, um, which is in Genesis 3.15, those that would repent and come to Christ, God tells them the consequences of their sin because there's still going to be punishment, right? Um, and he curses the serpent and all of creation, right? The ground has thorns and thistles. Animals are going to be eating each other. They're going to die. Um, it's going to be a, a very different place. And he, um, so he curses Eve first. And he says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Her relationships were cursed. Um, and specifically her relationship with her husband and her children. And we know um, that in reality, all of our relationships are cursed, really, as a result of the fall. But we're still cursed in these relationships today. I mean, when you think about books, magazines, TV shows, what do they talk most about for women? Marriage and children, right? Because it's the things we have the most difficulty with because that's a specific punishment by God um, for our sin. And I want to focus on the second half of the curse first, and then we'll talk about the first half. Um, so the, it's really interesting here because the same Hebrew word for desire um, is also used in Genesis 4, 7. Um, it's the same language. It's the same grammatical construction in um, Hebrew. Um, when Cain was upset that God would not accept his offering, and Cain, uh, God said this to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Okay, so desire here means that sin wants to rule over and master you, um, but you must master sin, which of course you can only do with God's help, but he's saying you have the ability to do that if you choose to do that. I can help you do that, but Obviously, Cain didn't choose that. So it's the same idea here. In this context, desire means that Eve would want to rule over and want to master her husband. But that's against God's original design for marriage. The husband is to be the leader and the wife is to be the helper. Now, that does not mean one is more important than the other or one is inferior to the other. Okay, please understand that. It means we have different roles. This is how God designed it and this is how it works best. Um, and so we, we bear the image of God uniquely within marriage as leader and as helper. How many times in scripture is the spirit, Holy Spirit referred to as our helper? So is helper really a bad thing? <laughs> no, it's just a different role within the Trinity. And that's a good thing. That's how the Trinity works best between God, the son and the Holy Spirit. So, um, so what would Adam's reaction to that be? So she's going to try to rule over him, but he's designated as the leader. So he's going to respond badly to that, right? And harshly and inappropriately because of sin. Um, he's supposed to have a role of loving leadership, and she is to have the role of loving submission. But we struggle with this. This is probably one of the biggest struggles within marriage. I know it isn't with mine because <laughs> I am a type A, okay, driver personality, right? And leadership personality. And being a woman in science, woo, you got to be really strong and you got to be really forceful and you're used to doing that. And then you come home, right? And you're in marriage and you're not supposed to be that way. And it's hard. It's hard to shift gears. I, I will fully admit I still struggle with that today. Um, and 
and I think all of us do. I know all of us do. It's part of the curse, right? Nancy Lee DeMoss and Mary Cassian in their book, True Woman 101, said, Sin twisted the positive desire of a woman to respond amendably to man into a negative desire to resist and rebel against him, right? She would want to rebel. Sin twisted the positive drive of a man to use his strength to lead, protect, and provide for a woman into a negative tendency to abuse her or to abdicate his responsibility toward her. So both are sinners, right? And both are doing the wrong thing um, because they're not, they're not submitting to their God-designed role um, within marriage that God had for them. And so it gets twisted. But again, grace is shown in the midst of cursing. The fact that she could still be in a marital relationship with Adam, right? She still gets to be married. She still gets, it's going to be harder. We're going to have to depend a lot on God to get, to be able to do this successfully, but it can be done. Now let's talk about the first part of the curse where um, God had said he will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Now I have never been pregnant, but I've watched a lot of people (laughs) be pregnant um, and have children. I've seen what other women have had to endure. And even though it is now cursed and it is painful, um, grace is shown in the midst of cursing because she would still be able to bear children. And think about how important that is because who eventually has to come? Christ, right? I mean, this childbearing is so crucial. I think, you know, back throughout all of the Old Testament, you think about why women, I think, were so grieved when they could not have children. I think part of it is because that's a woman's natural desire many times that God has instilled in us. But think about it. They're waiting for the seed. They know a seed is coming. And they, and they want to, you know, help promote that and to get to that point. They don't know when it's coming, but they know it's coming. And so even though, you know, it's cursed and painful, it's still possible and it's important um, because it would bring forth Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says, as a matter of fact, the promise that Eve would still bear children mitigated every other aspect of the curse. That one simple expectation contained a ray of hope for the whole human race. Eve had set a whole world of evil in motion by her disobedience. Now, through her offspring, she would produce a savior, right? She has two legacies, one of sin and despair, but one of salvation and hope. And that one of salvation hope is an eternal one, right? The sin and despair, it's temporal. But salvation and hope is Christ, that's eternity. So now that the curses have been pronounced, Adam names Eve. Because up to this point, even though I've called her Eve, technically in scripture, she's just been called woman. She does not have a name. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life giver. And many times throughout scripture, God renames people to signify a new beginning, right? We see that many times. Abram becomes Abraham. Um, and here, I think Adam's really doing that. He's, he's, choosing, he's naming Eve because eventually her descendants that would come would bring the promised seed, right? That would crush Satan's head. So just as Eve is a physical life giver, Christ would be the spiritual life giver. And I want to give you just sort of a a modern day example of that grace, right? Amid suffering, amid the curse, amid pain. And so the best example I can think of is my family, okay? It really is. Um, That's a very personal example for me. So my husband and I are unable to have biological children, right? And that is because of the curse. I don't blame God for that. I know fully well whose fault it is. It's ours. (laughs) Um, It's everybody's fault, right? It's sin. It's because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that is difficult to accept. And it's very sad. And there's a lot of women I know that struggle with that. 
But God was gracious, and he brought Elizabeth, my daughter, um, into our lives through adoption. Um, He knew she was going to need a mom and dad to take care of her, and he knew that we needed a daughter to take care of. Elizabeth, my daughter, is a living, breathing example of God's grace, right? That he can bring hope um, and love amid suffering, amid um, the curse, um, she's 13 years old now. <laughs> uh, she's 13 months old in this picture, a um, long time ago. But um, So it wasn't just true for Adam and Eve and other people in the Bible. It's just as true for us today. Nothing has changed. Um, God offers that hope. God offers, God offers grace in the midst of that suffering. And so I want to go to a later point in time after the fall when Eve gives birth to her first son. In Genesis 4, she says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and born Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. All right, so in Genesis 4, we actually see evidence of a very different Eve. Instead of waffling on the truth of God's word, like she did in Genesis chapter 3, we see a woman who has hope in the promise of God, um, God's promise of a Savior um, that would crush the serpent. Instead of focusing on her past failures, she's focusing on what the future holds, God's promise to that. She's clinging to that. And uh, Martin Luther and other commentators think that her wording here, saying, I have acquired a man from the Lord, indicates that she believed this was going to be the seed that would crush Satan's head. Now, remember, she has no idea of timeline here, right? God did not reveal that to them. Um, The Genesis 3.15 is the first Messianic prophecy. Um, It's sometimes called the Proto-Evangel. It's the first evangelistic message given in Scripture. There would be a seed that would come. But God hasn't given them any kind of time frame, right, Um, of when this is going to happen. And so she's going to be sorely disappointed, right, because Cain is not going to be um, that seed. He commits the first murder recorded in Scripture, But she was trusting, and she was believing God's word to do what he promised. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. And again, the word Seth actually means given or appointed. In this case, another seed. She's thinking maybe he's going to be the one. Now, what's interesting about that is that um, when it comes to Seth, and as for Seth, to him also was born a son, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth was not the promised one, but it was through Seth's line that Jesus Christ would come, right? And so the men, would be, men began to call on the name of the Lord, and, and Christ would come through that line. And so I believe Eve, through the naming of her sons, really showed that she believed God's word, and she was looking forward to that promised seed that would come. Because think about it, she's living in a fallen world. We only know a fallen world. Think about Eve's perspective. She saw a perfect one. She lived in a perfect one, at least for some period of time. She has a comparison like we do not have. Think about how grieving that must have been to her. Um, and But she believed in God. She didn't know what the plan was. She didn't know when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, but she knew it would happen. And she believed that. And MacArthur writes this about Eve. This godly line, which endures in the faith of millions even today, was to a large degree their legacy. Happily for Eve, it will eventually prove to be an infinitely infinitely more enduring legacy than her sin. After all, heaven will be filled with her redeemed offspring, and they will be eternally occupied with the celebration of the work of her seed. And that is a legacy that we want to leave. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are imperfect. Yes, we make wrong decisions just like Eve. Um, But because of God's grace in our lives, um, we can leave a legacy of salvation and hope. 
um, through Jesus Christ. And Adam and Eve might have, they died, you know, Adam was 930 years old, so who knows how old Eve was when they died, but they left a legacy through Seth, right, as well as other children, and, and it continued. And about 1,500 years later, we come to the next sea. Now, Adam and Eve are long gone at this point, but things have gotten really bad, right? The curse had devastating effects, and man's thoughts were only evil continually. So God judged all of mankind and creation with a global catastrophic flood. But God's promise to Eve was not broken, right? Or there would have been no people on the ark um, if it was broken. That would have been a problem. And he saved righteous Noah and his family on the ark to continue that lineage because the seed has not come yet. We've got to get there. And about 100, 120 years or so after the flood, we get to the fourth sea, which is confusion. And even after Noah's descendants, um, you know, left the ark, they weren't perfect. They still rebelled at the Tower of Babel. God scattered them over the face of the all of all the earth, but he was still at work to fulfill his promise, right? He's got to bring that seed. And so we're going to fast forward to the New Testament now. So we're talking 4,000 years after that first sea of creation, we have the fifth sea of Christ, right? So God made that promise in Genesis 3.15, and 4,000 years later, he's going to fulfill it because the Son of God becomes a man, right? And we can see those lineages that were traced in Scripture all the way back to Adam through Seth. And imagine how Eve will be rejoicing for eternity in the realization of that expected seed, Jesus Christ. Her hope was fulfilled, right? It will not be eternally sin and despair. It will eternally be salvation and living with Christ. The creator stepped into his creation, right? God became a man for us. And so that promise could be fulfilled, right? Finally, in, in one way, that promise is going to be fulfilled. And it is fulfilled in the sixth sea of cross. The promise, um, her hope is fulfilled by Jesus Christ paying the price for sin. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. Right? You can think of when Satan, or when Jesus Christ resurrected, he's effectively crushing Satan's head. It is a death blow right, to Satan. Um, he's taking the punishment for our sin on himself. And then the seed resurrected, right? He didn't stay dead. And he promised to return someday, to end, to put a final end, to be a, a final fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, or a, a full fulfillment of it, so to speak, a complete fulfillment by destroying Satan, right, and the curse forever. Um, and it is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Um, for the old order of things has passed away, and no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And I'm looking forward to that day. I really am. i got to tell you, I've had a lot of friends this year that have dealt with cancer, um, miscarriages, just a lot of really heavy stuff. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard when we live in this sin-cursed world. But we have hope right? That's the awesome thing. I don't know how people, it's just hard for me to imagine not having Christ as part of my life, not having him be my life, um, and how I would be so despairing and not have that hope. And so Eve displayed her hope in God's promised seed through the naming of her sons, right? She looked forward to the seed and the destruction of sin and despair that Adam's sin had brought upon the world. So there were two legacies. There's no doubt about it, right? She did something horrible, and there, and there was sin and despair. But she also did something amazing, right? And, and through that would come 
the salvation and hope of Jesus Christ. And so just as Eve had that choice 6,000 years ago um, concerning her own legacies, we have that choice today. What legacy will we leave? Will we choose to be like God and, or choose to be like Eve and try to be like God, right? And not obey God's word and seek perfection in the eyes of the world, which is sinful and leads to despair? Or will we choose to be like Eve when she named her sons and believed in God and evidenced her hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ, who would come to save us? I hope and pray that we leave um, a legacy that leads to salvation and hope um, and help others do the same. It's never too late to start that legacy, right? You cannot out God, right? God is merciful and compassionate and gracious and always willing to forgive. I mean, he wants to forgive us. He wants us to come to him and his grace to be showed. So how do we accomplish that? Because we have to, we have to trust God's word and we have to realize that the battle, we're fighting the same battle today that Eve fought 6,000 years ago when she answered Satan's question of, did God really say, right? And, and that's what's being questioned. And when we come back after lunch, we're going to talk more about that. Because when it comes to these issues, Genesis is the most attacked book of the Bible. And not just about the science, we're going to talk about some of those things, but also think about the definition of marriage and the sanctity of human life, right? Why are humans different? Why is abortion wrong? Because we are image bearers, every single human being from the moment of fertilization. And that's why abortion's wrong, right? Why is marriage between one man and one woman? Because that's how God designed it. That's what it says in Genesis. So all of these things are related, and we need to understand that because that history is being undermined and told not to believe in. So is everything that's built on that, which is everything, okay, including the gospel itself. And so we have to look at that. And so I want to tell you about um, some resources that we have out there. Um, I know some of you have been to the Creation Museum. You might be familiar with it, but um, hopefully there's some, some of you that haven't. You can kind of get to know us and who we are and why we do what we do. And so we have a newsletter. This comes out once a month. It's free. Um, you can sign up at the resource table for that. We also have a, mag a magazine, Answers Magazine. This comes out six times a year now. I just started this year with six. And Every issue has a kids magazine, like a little mini kids magazine in it, and then it has um, all these other articles that are really about building that biblical worldview, right? How do we look at the world through the Bible and understand it that way? And we, we talk a lot about Genesis and about creation because that's important, but we're relating that to these issues of the world. I know in the upcoming issue, we're going to have an article on um, the transgender issue because this is a big one. And why are we, how do we talk about that with Genesis? Well, God created the male and female, right? And so that's, where it all starts, understanding that issue. And so we're not afraid to talk about those things, and we want to address them to help uh, the church and to help Christians under, defend their faith. And for every year that you sign up for a magazine uh, subscription, we'll give you a free DVD. So um, one year you get one DVD and so on. So you can see that out there. We have our YouTube special. Um, this is basically just to help you um, to get the most resources. I believe we also have three for 35. I don't have it on this slide, but... Um, this is just a great way, any combination of books and DVDs, and that gives you a great package or resource to start your creation library. A version of this presentation, although not the exact same one, but um, some of the big points are still there, um, is on, available on DVD out on the tables. The seven C's of history, I'm going to be going through those in a little more detail um, after lunch here, and so we also have a DVD on that. 
Um, the Lie, Evolution in Millions of Years. This is really the textbook of our ministry. It's who we are and it's why we do what we do. I always say it's our heartbeat. Um, it's why this is important. And it is important because all of this relates to the gospel and that's why it matters. Um, Already Gone talks about a study that we did a few years ago of 20-somethings and how what they're thinking about these issues um, like abortion and, and you know, homosexual marriage and creation and all of that and what we can do to really help people have a better understanding of that. How could a loving God, um, this is dealing with the issue of death and suffering, right? Wow. How do we deal with that? How do we help people have real biblical answers to that? Because this is, a, this is one of the biggest questions that I get or the most common question. Well, if God is loving and merciful, why is there pain and suffering in this world? Well, we've got to go back to Genesis, right? We have to understand that. God is good. Nothing he does is not good because he's a very definition of good. So everything that happens, has, he has a purpose and a plan for that. So that really helps you understand it better. Ken Ham is, our, is the president of Answers in Genesis. He wrote it. And it's very personal because he had a brother die of a very um, horrible brain disease. And so this was like a very personal look at that as well as, I mean, he's having to (laughs) say, okay, how do I apply this, right? This isn't just something I'm teaching and preaching. It's how do I take this and apply this to my life? How do we know the Bible is true, okay? Um, Lots of great questions for some of those um, things that people talk about uh, that we might get in defending our faith. The answer is books one, two, three, and 4. I love these. I use these all the time. Uh, where did Cain get his wife? How many other day means a day? Uh, what about radiometric dating? What about dinosaurs? What about aliens? Okay, so lots of really great information in there. Very easy to understand, which is, I'm only an expert in one area. So um, I need help in all those other areas too. Um, we have a version for teens as well as a version for children because we really want everyone to be equipped. And these are great to work through. I worked through these books with my daughter a few years ago. Um, and upper elementary is a good age for those and really understanding those issues. Dinosaurs for kids, probably one of my personal favorites. On dinosaurs, um, really helping them understand um, that dinosaurs were not millions of years ago. Okay, they're only 6,000 years ago. And so um, having a better understanding of that. Um, I got to visit the Galapagos Islands a few years ago because my job is really cool. <laughs> and so it was really a fun trip to take and learn about the animals there. And so this is a book that I um, was the general editor for and have many different contributions to it looking at that because that's where Darwin visited and said, oh, evolution, this is how it happened. You know, one of the things that played a major role in that and we want to take it back. We want to say, nope, that's not what it shows at all. Um, so I have some other DVDs out there. I won't go through all these. Um, every year at Answers in Genesis, we have a women's conference that we sponsor in April. And um, a couple of years ago, we um, were able to tape them and put them on DVD. And so they deal with issues like sexual sin, like adultery, um, abortion, um, homosexuality, death and suffering, uh, disabilities. And so we have a box set of that back there. It has a study guide for each of the DVDs. So if you'd like to use it in like a women's Bible study or even for personal study, it's a really great set. Um, Begin book is kind of a special book. It's, um, we have it available for $3, so it's a special deal. It's great for new believers or unbelievers. It has portions of scripture with some commentary to kind of tie it all together. And then um, what does it mean to be saved and answers to 10 most asked questions. So it's kind of like the Bible in a nutshell um, is what I always refer to it as. So um, those are great resources, witnessing resources. Uh, next year's women's conference will be April 6th and 7th. Um, we actually outgrew the Creation Museum Auditorium. Uh, so we had to move to a church nearby. It's about 20 minutes from there, uh, Florence Baptist Church. 
And uh, it will all be about life, contending for life from beginning to end. So we're going to be addressing topics like euthanasia, um, abortion, sex trafficking, uh, race, the issue of race and racism. Uh, so lots of really um, hot topics, so to speak, that we're going to be addressing in that. And so if you want more information on that, um, go to answersforwomen.org. We, we should have the new information up soon. And I'll talk about the ARC um, a little bit uh, next time for those of you that haven't um, had the opportunity to visit. And um, I'm going to finish. So I don't know who's coming up, but thanks. <laughs>